Praise the Lord. Wow. I feel like we just went to school. World history and theology all in 50 minutes. But that was powerful, Bill. Thank you so much for that. Amen. Thank you, Andrew, for this opportunity to speak. I truly do appreciate it, and I, I'm so honored. Um, I wanted to just also honor my wife for a second. Um, Donna, would you stand up? This is my wife, Donna. She is an amazing, amazing human being. And uh, I just wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for you, babe. Um, I'd like to uh, share with you guys today a message that I'm calling Arise and Build. The, the foundational text that I want to use for this comes out of the book of Haggai. And it's uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I, was gonna, I, I would say turn in your Bibles, but I know we don't do that anymore, right? We don't bring Bibles. But I, I think these guys can get it on the screen for you here pretty quick. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, it says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of the, and then in verse 9 he says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Recently, God has been speaking to me about the need in the body of Christ for unity, strategy, and collaboration. And in this process, he led me to read the book of Haggai and some other accounts related to the rebuilding of the second temple. Those books, primarily there's three, okay, just to, to get us going here today. The book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah and the book of Ezra, right? Three books that we in our circles don't really talk about a lot, right? They're a little bit strange, a little bit unusual, not sure exactly what's going on. But I firmly believe in my heart right now that God has a message for the church in this day and in this hour from these obscure books. Because what happened to the Jewish people in that little segment of time, when they returned to their land, to the holy city, and they set about to build the house of God, is exactly where we are right now. You see, it hit me as I was reading in Haggai, it began to dawn on me that this makes total sense. I think it's almost probably God's divine appointment that Lance Wall now is here at the time that I feel like I'm called to deliver this. It's a little bit intimidating, honestly. But brother, Don and I were sitting in, in our bedroom one night and all of a sudden up comes on the TV, you from the Jerusalem Hotel, saying, don't pay any attention to these sex tapes. Donald Trump is going to be the next president because he is the Cyrus. And I believe that turned out to be an accurate prophecy. In fact, I think it was probably one of the most significant prophetic words given in our lifetimes, maybe, maybe the most significant. 
Well, if Donald Trump was Cyrus, he's no longer in office. We need to be asking ourselves as the church, what happened to the Jewish people after Cyrus? And that story is given to us in the word of God in Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. Before I go into this any further though, I want to tell you what my point is, what I believe the point God has for us today. And it's this, that God is calling us to rebuild his house so that he can manifest his glory in the midst of a corrupt and pagan world. Let's talk about glory for just a second. Habakkuk, another obscure prophet, Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14 is, you know, when we, when we, you go on Truth and Liberty's website, right? You'll see vision and mission, right? Every organization's got to have a, a vision statement and a mission statement. Well, right here, Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14 is the vision statement of the Lord God Almighty for this earth. He says there, he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah chapter 43, verse seven says that we are all created by him for his glory. First Corinthians 10, 31 commands every one of us, no matter what it is we're doing to do all things, what? For his glory. Bringing glory to God that idea as being the overriding purpose of mankind and our overriding calling as believers and followers of Jesus Christ seems a little bit odd to us today. But I wanna tell you that this was not lost on the reformers in the great reformation and it was not lost on the founding fathers of the United States of America. If you look at the founding documents of our nation, the very, very beginning ones, this is line number one, issue number one. Let's look at the Mayflower Compact, shall we? Everybody know what that is, right? The pilgrims are on board the Mayflower off the coast of Plymouth, Massachusetts. And they're, they say among themselves, hey guys, um, we probably ought to come up with some rules here for this new society that God has called us to build. And what do they say in the, the first words out of their mouths, if you will, or on the page, in the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, loyal subjects, yada, yada, yada. Having undertaken, what? For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. You see, they were building a new world and they knew it. 10 years later, when John Winthrop sailed with more pilgrims on board the Arabella, he said, the eyes of the world are upon us. We shall be as a city upon a hill. They knew this and they knew that what they were doing was for the glory of God. The first charter of Virginia was actually sooner than the Mayflower Compact. And this is what they wrote in the first uh, charter of Virginia in 1607. They said they were undertaking this colony and I quote, for the glory of his divine majesty, that's God they're talking about, in propagating the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. And then we have in the Westminster Catechism, I know this is a little bit new stuff for you today, but the Westminster Catechism is what the Church of England wrote 
in order to teach people the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And the very first question in the Westminster Catechism and the very first answer was, what is the chief end of man? And the answer was, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Guys, if you look at the Bible, where does God manifest his glory? Well, don't get ahead of me. He manifests it in his house. If you look at Moses, for example, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 38, through 38, it says, after Moses built the tabernacle, you remember the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness with goat skins and ram skins and all this kind of stuff? He, and when it was finished, the Bible says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then we see later when they built the temple of Solomon, the first brick and mortar house of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. The vision of God is to inhabit his house. But I thought it said in Habakkuk that the knowledge of the glory was going to cover the earth. Well, let's finish connecting these dots, shall we? In John chapter 4, which Daniel Amstutz talked about earlier today, I think it was Daniel, Jesus encounters the woman at the well, a Samaritan. And she says to him, your, your people worship down there in Jerusalem, my people worship up here. And Jesus says to her, lady, the hour is coming, I'm telling you, when people are not going to worship at that place or at their place. Because the hour now is when the, those who love God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Because worship will not be fixed at a certain location. It's going to happen inside the real temple of God, which is the human heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. If we could pull that verse up. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? And verse 20, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, there's that word again, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. We, the church, are not only the house of God, we are the carriers of his glory. So here we see it, guys. Let's connect these dots real quick. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, I will fill this house with my glory, and the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And then in Habakkuk chapter 2, he says, the knowledge of my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Wow, how did the water cover the sea? Though I thought the water was the sea. The water covers the sea in two directions, doesn't it? You've got a lateral coverage, but you've got a depth to it as well. You see, God is calling us, church, he's calling us to spread throughout the world and be carriers of his glory 
but not only in a geographic sense, but in a depth sense. Because God wants his glory seen in every aspect of human society. From the family to the boardrooms, from the government halls to the television station, and everywhere in between, the classroom and the boardroom, the dining room and every other room, God wants his glory manifested. But it's not going to be in the Old Testament sense. It's not like there's, like it tried to do this morning with the glory cloud coming out. We're not going to see it and feel it until Jesus comes. In the meantime, what he wants to manifest is the knowledge of his glory by witnessing Christ in you, Christ in me. That's why Jesus said, let your light shine. Why do we let our light shine? Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine so that men may see your good works and give glory to our Father which is in heaven. So let's get back to our story about the building of the house of God, shall we? So here's what happens. You guys know this. Solomon's temple, 587 BC, along comes Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, the greatest king that had lived until that day. And the Jews resisted him. And so he invaded and conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the city and destroyed the house of God and took the Jews captive to Babylon. Decades later, a guy named Cyrus... A guy named Cyrus, who was predicted by the prophet Isaiah by name, Isaiah 45, invades Babylon, conquers Babylon, and sets up what we now call the Medo-Persian Empire. One of the very first things that this new King Cyrus did is he issued a decree freeing the Jews and sending them back home. We see the decree in Ezra chapter 1. Let's read there, Ezra 1 and 2. Because what I want you to get out of this is that Cyrus was raised up by God for a purpose. Cyrus was for a purpose. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of President Trump of New York. That he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put also in writing saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia. Listen to this now. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus released the Jews into, a, into freedom for the purpose of building God's house. I believe that God raised up Donald Trump for the United States of America and the nation of Israel, most particularly for a purpose. And that purpose was to bring freedom to enable, not just for freedom's sake, but because we have a calling and we have a mission and we need that envelope of freedom in order to accomplish that purpose. And that purpose, according to scripture, if you look at what's happening right here, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, they follow right after Cyrus. It is to build the house of God. Now, as we look at the story, guys, one important thing to understand is when Cyrus sends the Jews out, he made sure that they had everything they needed. 
It talks in detail in Ezra chapter 2. Cyrus ordered all the neighbors of the Jews to give to them gold and silver and livestock and a lot of other things so that they would be equipped when they entered back into their land to do the thing that Cyrus wanted them to do. It tells us that 50,000 Jews, including servants, plus 7,000 livestock returned to Jerusalem. They really had an abundance to do this work. The other thing you need to understand about the context of this is what had happened to the land in the meantime. The Jews were where? They were in Babylon, they were in slavery, they were in captivity. Well, the land doesn't just sit there, it gets filled. By what? Pagans, heathens, Democrats. I'd say I'm sorry, but I'm not. Now in this story of the Jews' return, there's two main figures, all right? You can't miss this point. There's two main guys in the story. One of them is named Zerubbabel. I love that name, Zerubbabel. I wanted to name, was it, I think it was Reagan I wanted to name Zerubbabel. Anyway, our second son, Donna wouldn't let me. I wanted to name Drew Hezekiah and Reagan Zerubbabel, or maybe it was Max. But anyway, wisdom prevailed. The second figure is Joshua. Here's what we need to get now, guys. Zerubbabel was the governor appointed by Cyrus, the new governor of that region. Political figure, government figure. The second guy, Joshua, was the Jewish high priest. Religion or the church. These two men together were called by God to lead the effort together, not separate, together, to build the house of God. This is a story that is a picture of where we are today. The house of God has been under attack in our nation for no less than 90 years, and I think a good argument could be made that it's been under attack for 150 years. There was a time in not, not too long ago in the United States of America, and I'm not saying this in a theological sense, but to be an American was to be a Christian. If you're an American, you were presumed to be a Christian. If you went overseas as an American, Muslims and others and Hindus and people of other faiths would assume you were a Christian because Americans are Christian, right? That's how it works. And I remember even growing up as a kid that... If you, if you ask somebody what, what they believed about God or you ask them something like that, people would be ashamed to say they were not a Christian. It would be an embarrassing thing. So what you had was lots of people running around saying they were Christians, even if they weren't. But that's how Christian our nation was only 45, 50 years ago. Our laws were based on the Ten Commandments. We had the Ten Commandments displayed in public buildings, in classrooms, in courtrooms. Do you know in the United States it was commonplace in every town in America for it to be against the law to open your business on a Sunday? These are called blue laws. It used to be against the law in America to get a tattoo. Tattoo parlors were illegal in most places. Before the United States Supreme Court got involved, it was illegal to have a porno film uh, theater in, in your town, right? Pornography was illegal except in, you know, certain isolated locations. What's that? No one's 
So, yeah, so was sodomy. Today, the church in America, the true church, there's a lot of strength. There's a lot of good stuff to say. But in terms of cultural influence, in terms of cultural influence, we lay in ruins just like the, second, the temple of Solomon. Our, the church in America, we, we, let's face facts, guys. In terms of cultural influence, we have been broken down and destroyed. David Barton pointed out earlier this week that in the last 20 years, there has been a 30% decline in the number of professing Christians in this nation. You guys, that's a vertical fall. You understand? That is so fast, it's stunning. So only 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview. 6%? That's almost non-existent. How do you go from becoming the Christian nation of the world to 6% biblical worldview? Let's stop pretending. Let's stop playing games here. We need to face this reality. But I've got some good news for you today. I've got some really, really good news for you today. Because it says in the book of Haggai and in the book of Zechariah, which we'll see in a second, that God will have his house rebuilt and he will inhabit that house and pour his glory out in it. Just like Zerubbabel and just like Joshua, we're called to work together to rebuild the house of God so that the Lord could manifest his glory in a pagan and corrupted land. God is commanding and calling us today to rebuild his house in our land, in our culture, so that he may manifest his glory to this pagan culture and this pagan land. So let's talk about what happened when the Jews came back to the land. It's incredible how many similarities there are. The first thing to where we are today, but the first thing that happened in Ezra chapter 2, verse 68, they get back to the land and, and Zerubbabel takes an offering, okay? All right, guys, all that stuff that, Cyrus, that all our neighbors gave us that Cyrus commanded, let's pull it now because we got to get to work. And here's what it says in verse 68 of chapter 2, and some of the chiefs of the fathers when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to be set up in his place. When I was reading this and I saw the word some, my heart sank. Do you know in America, what's the statistic, Andrew, Mark, of the percentage of Christians that actually tithe today? I think it's less than 5%. Imagine with me, guys, imagine something. It, and don't get into arguments about whether this is under the law or under grace. But what would happen if Christians would just tithe? The world would be transformed. We would be transformed overnight because the wealth that would enter into the coffers of the, the, the church would be, there'd be no comparison to it. It would be incredible. It would literally be trillions of dollars. The second thing that happened is that they didn't get to work right away. The Bible says in Ezra chapter uh, 2, verse 70, that they went to their cities. Okay, this is important. You let this sink in for a second. 
the, the, the priests, the Levites, and some of the people, and the singers, and the porters, and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities, and all Israel in their cities. Why didn't they set up tents around Jerusalem and do the work of God first? Remember 9-11? Of course you do. What happened after 9-11 in America? Our churches were full. People were scared and they were seeking God. But once that situation got a little bit under control, what happened? <laughs> Me in the morning. We went back to sleep. We went back to sleep. The Bible says in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, that it wasn't for seven more months until the Jews came back to Jerusalem to do something, where they erected the altar of God and began to make sacrifices according to the law of Moses. But here's the thing. You would have expected them, all right, guys, let's get going. Let's rebuild this house. No, they do their religious duties. And what does it say they did? They went home again. It took another seven months before they came back and then finally started building the temple. In Ezra chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 13, it, it talks about this and it says they had a, a great ceremony and there was worship and singing and, and celebration and mourning and crying. In fact, the worship was so emotional and so powerful that it could be heard a long ways off. So what happens next? And this is where it gets really interesting in the story. The Bible says in, in Ezra chapter 4, this is after the, the foundation is laid, so construction has started. Ezra chapter 4 verse 1, now adversaries, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came. And I'll finish the next, the rest in a second. Then they came. So guys, listen, now there's something really key here. The devil really doesn't mind so much when we have our Bible studies and we go to church and we have worship services and we get goosebumps and we have celebrations and everything feels good and awesome. When he starts to sit up and pay attention is when the Christian begins to actually work, to actually do something to change the reality. When the Christian actually begins to go to the abortion clinics and counsel people on the sidewalk, when the Christian begins to go to the polling uh, places and volunteer as an election judge, or when the, the Christian begins to recruit people to run for office who believe in God and believe in freedom and believe in pro-life, this is when the devil gets mad and he starts to sit up and pay attention. The, the enemies of Israel didn't mind so much the religious exercises, but as soon as they actually started building that foundation and proved that they were serious about erecting the house of God, the adversaries came. And these adversaries, let me explain to you the context. They were Samaritans, okay? What were later called Samaritans. Who were Samaritans? Samaritans were people that were pretending to be like Jews. Ooh, yeah. Remember what happened? Nebuchadnezzar, or this, the, the kingdom of Israel was broken in two. You remember this with Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south? Jero, you know, Andrew talked about this the other night, the sins of Jeroboam. The northern kingdom became so evil, much, uh, much quicker than the southern kingdom. And what happened is the Assyrian Empire under Sennacherib came in and conquered the northern kingdom and took them captive. 
But the successor to King Sennacherib was a guy named Esarhaddon. Esser, King Esarhaddon sent Babylonians, pagans, intentionally shipped them into the land of Israel to occupy that land in place of the Jewish people. And they corrupted the religion and they co-opted the mission. Listen to what it says in uh, uh, Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the Lord, that the children re, uh, were rebuilding the temple, look at verse 2, then came the, they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asser, which brought us up hither. You see, guys, in our culture, in America, and throughout the Western world, really, there are people who pretend to love what is good, but they reject the authority of God's word. And they come in and they corrupt our teaching and what we believe and they steal or co-opt our mission. Today, our doctrine has been corrupted with social justice and LGBTism and our mission has been co-opted by social do-gooders, if I might say it that way. I'm gonna talk about this more in a little bit. But praise the Lord, Zerubbabel and Joshua resisted this temptation. In Ezra chapter four, verse three, it says, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chiefs of the fathers of Israel said unto these imposters, you have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, king of Persia, hath commanded us. So their first strategy of the Samaritans to stop the house of God or to, to steal it was to corrupt the doctrine and co-opt the mission. The second strategy when that didn't work, was persecution and opposition. So in Ezra chapter four, the next verse, verse four and five says, then the people of the land, then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. And verse five says, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius. So here's what happened next, okay? So the people of the land are now opposing the building of the house of God. How did they do it? It tells us. Two guys named Rahum and Shemshai, <laughs> another fun names, got together and they wrote a letter. They wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes. And in this letter, they accused the Jews of some things. And this, I'm gonna tell you what they said and it ought to sound to you really, really familiar. The first thing they did is they assassinated their character. They said, these people are, are trying to rebuild a rebellious and bad city. So how long have we been hearing lies from the secular left about how Christians are intolerant and Christians wanna put people into bondage and all these other defamatory things that they've said about us? The second thing they did is they lied and said that we didn't want to pay taxes. That's what they said. You can look at it right there in Ezra chapter 4, verse 13. Don't let them do this because they don't want to pay taxes. We just got through fighting this fight right here in Woodland Park. Social media and everywhere else were all these God haters. Excuse me for being blunt, but let's call a spade a shovel, as Andrew said. 
resenting our tax-exempt status because they do not treasure or value the work of the Lord that is being done here. They think it's a lot more important to pave a street than to win a soul. Sorry, it's true. The, the third thing they did is they distorted the Jews' history. Ezra chapter 4 verse, verse 15 says that they, in this letter to the king, they asked the king, look through your records and you're going to see how they were a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and they have moved sedition within the same of old time. So in America, what we have, David Barton says, when we teach history, we need to teach the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? We need a balanced view of history. Yes, America has made mistakes. Yes, we had slavery. Yes, we uh, did this and did that. But if that's all you teach, then you are distorting history and you're doing it for a reason because you want to subvert this nation and its calling and its mission. And that's exactly what Shemshai and Rehum did here. They told some of the bad about Israel, but they didn't tell the king about what Israel really was about, about its divine origin, about its calling to bring the truth of God to the world. In verse 16, they used scare tactics. They told Artaxerxes, we certify if this city be builded again, you shall have no portion on this side of the river. Basically, they're saying, <clears throat> Artaxerxes, there's this guy over here and he wants to take over. Uh, if you didn't catch it, Andrew's been accused in the media of wanting to take over Woodland Park. I, I mean, I don't think Andrew wants the headache, honestly. <laughs> Just like today, Christians are defamed. History is stolen. Young people are taught that America is evil. People want, don't want to see religious organizations tax exempt anymore. And now they're calling us what? Dominionists, Christian nationalists, saying that we want to impose Christianity on the world. Joshua, here's the tragedy in the story. Joshua and Zerubbabel did nothing to oppose these lies. They let the letter go to Artaxerxes and they did not rise up and speak and tell the truth about the matter. It says in Ezra chapter 4, verse 23 and 24 that Artaxerxes reviewed the letter and then he issued a decree and he sa it says there, um, when the copy of King, he, he wrote a letter and in the letter he ordered the Jews to cease building the house of God. Let's look at verse 24. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, we know what it's like to get a cease and desist order here. That's exactly what this was. It was an ancient king issuing a cease and desist order to the house of God. You shall not worship. You shall not bring people into your house to worship. You got to close your doors. Stop doing what you're doing. So imagine what this moment was like for Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people of God. They were captives and slaves and suddenly they're set free by the hand of God to go back and rebuild the house of God in the land of promise. They have glory in front of them. They have awesome vision there. God's gonna do great things. He's gonna restore the nation of Israel. 
And they go and it's sluggish and one problem after another and then the next thing you know, the government shuts them down. How hopeless should, do you think they felt? How dejected do you think they were? But here is the most awesome part of the story. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1 says, Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the Lord God of Israel, even unto them. And from that moment on, Zerubbabel and Joshua were different men. The word of the Lord came unto them and they received the promise of God's assurance and God's plan and the revelation that God was with them and was behind them and was going to give them success and they set about building the house of God again with new boldness. The Bible says that uh, in verse two, then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jozadak and began to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem. See, what were they doing here, guys? They were doing what Andrew did when he said, we're not obeying your cease and desist order anymore. They did what Pastor Rob did when he said, my church isn't closing. They defied the illegal order of the king because they were subject to a higher order, the order of God Almighty and the previous order issued by Cyrus. I love Haggai, or excuse me, Ezra chapter 5, verse 5. Here's what happens. The two new guys come along, a guy named Tatnai and Shetherbaznai. Don't you, there's another fun one. And they come to him and they say, they say to him, who told you you could start building again? And they also say, give us the names of everybody involved. Literally, that's what they did. And then verse 5 says, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. Woo! What made the difference between construction is shut down and construction is resumed? What happened in between those two things? Well, let's look at the word of God. Go with me to, go with me to um, Zechariah chapter four, verse six through 10. Zechariah prophesies to Zerubbabel and he says in verse six, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel saying, now Zerubbabel was the, he was the guy in government. Remember, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, grace, Grace unto it. Moreover, verse 8, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small beginnings? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. And they are the eye, and, and on and on it goes. But Zechariah is saying, Zerubbabel, you've you've laid this foundation. You're going to finish this house. How are you going to do it? With your own strength? No, but with my spirit and my power, with my grace upon you. Amen. So church, be encouraged today. In Haggai chapter 2, let's look at the larger context of that scripture I read earlier. It says in there, 
The Lord spoke to Haggai and he said, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. This is Haggai 2.2, governor of Judah and to Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest and to the residue of the people saying, who is left among you that saw this house in your first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord of hosts, it's the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Jozadak, for I am with you saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word which I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear not, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once and in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with my glory, saith the Lord of hosts. And he goes on in verse 9 to say, and the glory of this house shall be greater even than Solomon's, shall be greater than the former. Church, this is where we are today. We are looking at a situation in America today that we are sorely tempted to be discouraged about. I thought we had this. I thought God gave us Donald Trump. I thought Trump was going to do all these awesome things, and he did. I thought he was going to make everything great, and we were... Now look at us. We got the Department of Education passing an ordinance today or this week that's going to make it illegal to, you know, not use gender-appropriate pronouns or whatever that junk is and to let transgenders go into other kids' bathrooms and all this other kind of garbage. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They told us we couldn't build. They told us we couldn't meet. America, I know what it is. I know, I know. America's being judged. That's it. I don't have to do anything because this is God. Wrong. Wrong. Cyrus did his part. Church, Cyrus did his part. He gave us a window of freedom, and it's now on us. It's now on us, the people of God. It's now on us to rise up and finish the mission that God has given us. See, Cyrus was never going to go to Israel and start laying bricks and mortar and timber. That was up to the Jews. But here's the thing, when the word of God came to them and that faith arose in their heart because they had revelation of their destiny, they had revelation of their calling, they had revelation that God was with them and that through him all things are possible and that it would be by his spirit and not by their own strength, it would be by his grace, then they were able to rise up and to commence the work again. And in fact, the Bible goes on to say that they shortly, they finished the work and they completed the house of God. But there's something, really more, something much more important in this story that you have got to see before I close. It, once again, the enemies of God rose up. Even though they, had laid, they, were, they were building again, Tatnai and Shetharbaznai came to him, as I told you, and they said, who do you think you are? Right? Who said you could do this? And we want the names of everybody. And then the Jews wouldn't back down. So what'd they do? They tried the old tactics again. They wrote another letter to the king. And in this letter, though, things were different. In this letter, Zerubbabel and Joshua stood up. They stood up for their rights. Because they required Tatnai and Shether Bosnai, hey, you guys, you write to the king, that's fine, but you better include in there 
what we have to say, which they did, amazingly enough. The letter to King, to, uh, to King Darius from Tatnai and Shether Bosnai, it's all right there in Ezra chapter uh, 6, uh, chapter 5, exa- uh, excuse me. But what they did basically, guys, is they said, we are building this house because God told us to build this house. And we are building this house because it is our God-given right to build this house and because we have the right under King Cyrus who gave it to us or recognized it. So I want you to hear the parallel right now. In the United States of America, our nation is built upon the foundational idea that every human being has the right, God-given right, to worship God, to speak his mind, free speech. All these other rights are given to us by God. And the most sacred of these, the first of the first of the first, is the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship God, the freedom to build the house of God, which means to speak the word of God. So we need to stand up in our culture and in our age and in our day and we need to speak to the king, so to speak, to the institutions and apparatuses of society, to the government, to Joe Biden, to to Jared Polis, to everybody else who stands against us and say, we're going to do what we're called to do because God gave us this right. You didn't give it to us and you can't take it away. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Here's the second thing that they said. They said God gave us this right, but then they also said Cyrus gave us this right. So we need to say to the culture and to the government, God has given us this command and this right, and we're not ashamed, but we need to also remind them the Constitution gives us this right. The Constitution guarantees this right. I just want to say something. I'm pretty ticked off today. I'm... Last week, the resident gave a speech. And he had the gall and the temerity to stand in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia where these incredibly important sacred documents were signed. And he claimed the cover of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence to virtually declare war on anybody who voted for Donald Trump. How dare you, Joe Biden, you lying hypocrite. You don't believe in the Constitution. So here's the, here's the cherry on top. <laughs> Darius, the new king of Persia, reads the letter from Tatnai and Shether Barznai. <laughs> and he makes a search of the royal records again. And this, fi- this time he finds Cyrus's decree. And when he reads what Cyrus said, he issues his own decree letter back to Tatnai and Shether Bosnai, and he says to them, you guys, you leave those Jews alone. Do not harass them. Do not molest them. Do not interfere with the building of the house of God. And then he says, here's what I'm going to do to you if you distort my words. He says, I'm going to hang you from the timbers of your own house, and then we're going to plow your house under and turn it into a dunghill. 
The third thing he did was he said, and, and furthermore, we're going to pay for the building of this house out of my treasury. And then the, the last thing he did, which is in the next chapter, he made them tax exempt. <laughs> so there's four lessons we need to take out of this story, church. Four lessons. And I don't have time to develop them all fully. I told Donna this ought to be a five-part series. <laughs> but the first lesson is this. We must press onward. We must press onward to build God's house, trusting in God to give us success. Just like the prophet said, Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings. Who are you, devil, that you're going you're gonna to stop us from rebuilding the United States of America? With God behind us, we're going to do this thing, and this house that we're going to rebuild is going to be even more glorious than the one that came before it. Haggai says, I'm going to shake the nations. Heaven and earth is going to shake. And when I'm done shaking, we're going to see what remains. And we know from the new covenant that the things that will remain are the things that are built upon the everlasting foundation of Jesus Christ. And he will fill this house with his glory. The second thing, the second lesson is that we must, building God's house, church, Building God's house must become our top priority. In this story of the Jews, when they went to the land, they stumbled and they haltered and they fumbled and they failed for this long season because building the house of God was not their top priority. Hear me now, this is going to sting a little. Their comfort was their first priority. They went to their cities. Well we'll, well, we'll get to God's house after we get our own house taken care of. Oh, that describes 97.9% of the church. Describe, used to describe me. I left my legal career to come here to Karis Bible College by the grace of Almighty God. But I want to tell you, it was the greatest decision that we ever made. It transformed our life, transformed our family's life, and is still the consequences, the, the ripple effects of that are still transforming the lives of people that we know and that our family knows. Haggai said in chapter one, he rebuked the Jewish people. And he said, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying, the um, this people say this time is, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed houses? That means tiled houses. And this house, meaning my house, lie waste. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to be put into a bag with holes. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Verse 9, why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man into his own house. We have to put the building of God's house first. And here's the thing, church. 
in this time of inflation and interest rates and depression. We have a promise from God that if we will put his house first, he will put us first. Because it goes on to say in Haggai 1.8, the Lord says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. That sounds a lot to me like Psalm 35.27 where the Lord says, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Okay, so I'm gonna sting you a little more now. You ready? You're sitting here today, you are the cream of the crop. You're the radicals. But what, have you given financially to the restoration of America yet? Are you supporting the rebuilding of God's house with your finances? As Andrew said, if he's not first in your finances, he's not first. We have become so complacent in this nation because we are so used to it being a Christian nation. As David Barton explained the other day, even our own, our vocabulary and our speech is permeated with biblical phrases. The legacy that we enjoy as Americans because of the hard work and dedication and devotion of our founding fathers to build a Christian society, it, it's everywhere. We just don't even realize it. But I want to tell you today, it's under barrage, it's under attack, it's under threat. It's a hair's breadth away from being lost. We're being turned into a progressive Marxist society right under our noses. And we've got to give everything it takes, everything we've got to turn this ship around. We must put calling over comfort. We must put God's demands over our desires. The third lesson from this story is this, is we must fully engage the culture. No more of this nonsense about, oh, I'm just preaching the gospel. If you're in a church like that, get out. There's not enough time for you to waste anymore. Get out and get into a church for all nations. Get into a, a, a you know, Calvary temple like Pastor Rob's. Get into a church that's preaching the truth to the culture where you can get engaged and make a difference. The modern church model has failed, let's be real. You don't look at a graph like what David Barton put up, 20% decline in 20 years of believers and continue to do the same thing and think that your method of doing church is working. Because the modern method says, stay out of politics, don't pursue worldly callings, just let's have seeker-friendly services, let's avoid anything controversial. The Bible says, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Besides, I wanna say to you, Zerubbabel and Joshua tried this. They tried the seeker-friendly model and it didn't work, did it? They ended up getting shut down just like half the churches in America. When they, when they became obedient and they became bold and they became courageous, believing God's word and God's promise, then God turned things around in an instant. This ministry that you're in sitting here right now, Andrew Womack Ministries is a miracle to behold. Do you know in the last three years, forgive me, Andrew, I hope I don't step on anything. Billy told me this the other day. In the last three years, the gross income of Andrew Womack Ministries, this is right during COVID, y'all. You understand what I'm about to say? Right during COVID, when churches everywhere and ministries everywhere are suffering and hurting and being shut down, the gross revenue of this ministry increased by 50%. Lesson number four, 
We must not compromise on our message or our mission. For over a hundred years in this nation, the church has been giving up ground and it's got to stop. We gave up education. We had education. We gave it up to the public schools and the secular humanists. Did you know we used to have health care? The hospitals in this country were run and operated by Christians, both Catholic and Protestant. Now they're run by giant corporations and progressives. There's doctors in America doing sex change operations on children. We've adopted the philosophy of compromise. Social justice coming into the church. Do you know there's no such thing as social justice? I could explain that as a lawyer, but I don't have time. <laughs> Evolution from our pulpits. Divorce, accommodated, allowed, endorsed. Sexual perversion, endorsed and welcomed. Perverts and pedophiles being put in the pulpit. George Barna did a survey of pastors and the vast majority of pastors acknowledge that the Bible speaks to the issues of our day, but they also admitted in this anonymous survey that they don't talk about it because they don't want to lose members. We must repent. This is the truth. If you want to be called the church, you need to repent. If you don't, you're not the church. And we've got to reclaim this ground. The church needs to be educating the youth, providing for the poor, producing leaders in business, producing leaders in industry, setting the bar for entertainment, running the hospitals, doing the things that society needs. We ought to be the go-to place. The Bible says God wants his glory to be known throughout the world as the waters cover the sea. This is what that scripture is talking about. So let me wrap it up. When I was studying for this message, I believe God gave me a word, a prophetic word. This has never happened quite like this for me before. It was so clear in my heart, I could hear it, that I wrote it down and typed it right up because I knew that God wanted me to give it to you. So I'm gonna do that right now, if you will. And I'll say to you that I believe this is, the, this is thus saith the Lord. Arise and build, saith the Lord. You who look at the circumstances around you say there is too much turmoil, too much danger, too much risk. You see with eyes of fear. You fear the government. You fear the media. And you fear the religious establishment of man. I say, this is the hour of your destiny. This is the time of opportunity. This is the prelude to my coming. Those who see with eyes of faith can see through the smoke and fog of war to the vision of my kingdom established and manifested throughout the whole earth. Did I not say my glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Did I not say I would enter my house with my glory? I will not enter my house with my glory until it is finished. Have I not called you? Have I not equipped you to finish it, saith the Lord? Where are the men of vision? Are they not among you? You are the men and women of vision. For my vision is inside you. Arise, dream it, imagine it, call it forth and get to work. For the time is here and the time is now for my house to be built.
So I, I just want to repeat again. What part of the house are you called to? Where are you called to build? Are you too busy, busy building your own tiled house? Let's put God's house first. Let's build his house and he'll give you a house like you couldn't even imagine. Amen. Praise the Lord. Guys, we're dismissed for lunch now. And I just want to let you know that um, if you've bought a, a lunch and you've got that on your name badge, go all the way over to the barn area with the uh, banquet hall and the meals are set up in there and they're seating in the barn and also throughout the area. Feel free to enjoy that. And we are going to reconvene here at, is it 1.30? Yes. At one. 115, guys, back in the auditorium at 115. Bill Federer is having a book signing on the concourse. Be sure to go by his. Oh, guys, let's say a word of prayer before our meal. Thanks, Matt. Let's pray, guys. Let's uh, holy hush for just a second. Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you the glory for everything you've done in this conference, for your salvation and love in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this food we're about to receive. Bless it for our bodies, and let us have some divine encounters during this break. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>